0: morning, Crossway. This morning's sermon text is from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 57 to chapter 28, verse 10. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of God.
1: If we take the resurrection away from the gospel account, what do we lose? Have you ever wondered why it's so important to have the resurrection? I know for my own um, interaction with others, oftentimes when I share the gospel, the resurrection feels like not as essential as his death. Uh, the focus on the payment for sins being the death of Christ and how his payment in that death is sufficient for our guilt and the penalty of sins. And it feels as though the resurrection is like a, it's an epilogue. It's like that line after a movie is over where they tell you what happened to the characters that represent real historical people. It's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. It's nice to know that that guy that won the race later became a congressman. it's, It's nice to know, but it's not essential to the story that was presented. I would suggest to you that although Matthew... Uh, subtly makes the point. The rest of the New Testament clearly affirms what Matthew seems to be pointing us toward, and that is the resurrection is essential for our salvation. In fact, I would suggest to you that the historical event of the resurrection reveals that Jesus is the victor over death. And that matters for multiple reasons, theologically and for our salvation. Uh, Perhaps you, you are aware of this, but as precious as a vehicle might be a car, if you were to buy a car and not put any gas in it, that vehicle becomes nothing more than a very expensive lawn ornament. I remember driving across country with my brother, who at the time was driving his Nissan Maxima that was a diesel and got fantastic mileage. And we were between gas stations, I think this was somewhere in Nebraska at about two in the morning, and he knew that between gas stations there is about 12 miles. And he was at 494 miles, and he's like, I think I can make it 500. He did. About 501, right between both gas stations at 2 in the morning in the middle of Nebraska. Do you know who had to walk to get gas at 2 in the morning? His 16-year-old brother, who didn't yet have his driver's license, trudging through the Nebraska highways. I had like two cops stop me. A car without gas does no good. The story of Jesus Christ's life and death requires a resurrection or does no saving good. So here's what the Gospels give us at the, uh, the letters that Paul writes and John writes later and Jude. Uh, they don't explain to us the story the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John even explain it to us. We have a historical account because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical and accomplished fact. This has happened. There are more witnesses to the resurrection than would ever be required in any court of law to establish and prove evidence. And in fact, the apostles and many of the witnesses did not get personal gain, but personal shame, suffering, torture, and death because of their conviction. And not one of them ever leaked it was a sham and a lie. It is established as historical fact. It is true. And Matthew anchors our confidence theologically in the narrative and the historical account, giving us a record so that we would know that our faith is not merely just in the spiritual claims of a resurrection, but in real historical events that happen to prove to us that Jesus has lived, he has died, and he has been raised again. And that historical record is also proof of the spiritual and invisible power of God raising the Savior from the dead, having paid the full price of sin. It is essential for our salvation that we know that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not only established historical facts, but they are the basis by which we are saved. We lose the resurrection, we are damned to hell. 1 Corinthians would say we are still in our sins. Romans 4 would say we are raised, or that Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. We lose the resurrection, and we are not saved. And in fact, we lose the hope of eternal life. We thereby lose all the hope of all of the costs that Jesus Christ tells us to bear in this life. That's why Paul says, if the resurrection has not happened, we are of all people to be the most to be pitied. Not only do we have a false hope, we live for that hope, and if the hope is in vain, then in fact the cost, the effort, the pursuit of Christ is worthless. I'm thankful the resurrection is true. I want to take you down to Matthew chapter 27 and, and walk through this. I'm going to do it in, in kind of two, two phases. The first one is walk through the history as we go through chapter 27 and 28. Matthew does uh, kind of a, a cycle. He goes... And he considers the followers of Jesus and then the enemies of Jesus in the wake of his death. Then he, he, he focuses again on the followers of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus in the wake of his resurrection. So as you follow the historical account, he, he's kind of got this one two one two One-two on the death, one-two on the resurrection. So I want like to talk through the history of the resurrection, and then I want to talk through the theology of the resurrection second. So let's begin with the history of the resurrection as we look at what happens to the friends of Jesus when he dies, come down to verse fifty-five with me in Matthew chapter twenty-seven. I'm going to try to read this for you so that you get a fresh understanding of what Scripture is saying here. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, perhaps in fear, perhaps to save Jesus the shame, because apparently he would have been fully naked. Sometimes when the Bible says naked, it means underclothed. In this one, it probably means he was stark naked. So you can imagine that these ladies who were there were giving him. Some sense of dignity, perhaps, by staying away, or perhaps they were afraid. Jesus is alone on the cross. He's he's dying and giving up his last. He's alone. Uh, These these had followed him from Galilee, and they were ministering to him. Among them are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Um, It's possible that James and Joseph are Jesus' half-brothers, so that Mary would be maybe Jesus' mom. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, her name would be Salome. I think that's in the Gospel of John. John you'd find that. And those would probably be his cousins, and Salome would be his aunt. So as you're thinking through these ladies, there's another lady Mary mentioned in John's Gospel. So there's four ladies here who have traveled and care for Jesus. You notice who's absent from this message right now? The disciples. There's 11 men who have vowed Just the night before, to never leave Jesus' side, to stand with him and be loyal to the end, it is both to the shame of those men as well as, I think, a point of the text that the only people with Jesus at his death were a few ladies, not his disciples. So an evening was there. There's a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was um, also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he goes to Pilate. We don't know this from this gospel, but if you were to read the other gospel accounts, Pilate, not sure that Jesus would have already died. It's only been six hours. It's an incredibly short time to die on a cross. Sometimes it would take days. Sends the soldiers to verify the two thieves are alive, and the Jews want them down because a holy day is coming. So the Romans break their legs. Jesus, of course, is already dead. Soldiers, not sure though, so and wanting to confirm this, stab him in the side of the spear because the water come or because his 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 fluids come out, both blood and water separated. Out of his side, it's confirmation that he's dead. So Joseph of Arimathea, this wealthy man, probably with servants of his, takes the body of Jesus. John records Nicodemus is with him. And they take and put him in Joseph's tomb. Look at verse 59. They wrap him in clean linen shroud, laid it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Again, the other gospel accounts, I think Mark records for us, there are 75 pounds of spices and perfumes with him. That's a lot of perfume. It's probably why they, they, uh, there's other helpers. Nicodemus, again, John records is there. They roll a great stone. So going through that, that, that tomb, it's, it's like a cave um, carved into the rock. Jesus would have been laid down on a stone slab. He'd have been covered with linen. He would have, perhaps if they had time, although maybe they didn't because the other Gospels record they're going Sunday morning later to perfume him. And so as the Passover dawn or or sun sets, you have these women. Look in verse 61. This is probably more heart-wrenching than you know. These women have come down with Jesus and his disciples to celebrate the Passover. Six days before, he had come into Jerusalem as a triumphant king riding on a donkey. Many in Israel are celebrating Jesus has come. This is the son of David. Through the course of the week, Jesus is experiencing the, the prosecution and the press by those who are opposed to him. Judas betrays him on Friday night after celebrating the Passover with the disciples. Jesus is then taken in the early hours of the morning, and he's is prosecuted by the religious leaders, probably somewhere from 12 a.m. or 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. in that morning. At dawn, those men take him, deliver him to Pilate. And trump up charges against him to get him killed and murdered by the hands of the Romans. You can only imagine what it is like for Mary and Siloam watching a son and a nephew be dragged in front of the Roman courts, beat and mocked. And then as he comes out of those trials, unable and broken so that he cannot carry his own cross, but to know when he comes out of that Roman garrison with a cross on his shoulders, he's dead. He is a dead man walking to his final hours. His friends are gone, he's abandoned. And these brave women stand watch. as her sweet Lord is killed. And as that stone rolls over that tomb, Mary says goodbye to her son. She says goodbye to our Lord. Hope, like the sun, goes dark. The next day, scripture says, this is the Sabbath day now. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Said, sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. It is interesting to know that they were deathly afraid of Jesus, so much so that they murder him while he was alive. Having successfully murdered him, they are now afraid of him in his death. They just cannot get away from the fear of this man, that he would undermine and destroy their ministry or their their influence and their power as spiritual leaders among the people of Israel. Therefore, they asked Pilate, verse 64, order the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And of course, if no body can be found and they, they whisper rumors of a false resurrection, there'd be no way for these leaders to disprove it. And so the legacy of this false messiah would live on, they think. And so Pilate says that they have their soldiers. Verse 65 probably indicates, you have your own guard. Use your temple soldiers. Uh, they, They would not have been allowed to be patrolling the land and policing the land. That would have been preserved for just the Roman soldiers. So Pilate gives them a special extension to be able to use their soldiers to guard the tomb. And so as you look Pilate says to them, go, you have your guard. So they, they go and make it secure in verse 66. They seal the stone, probably indicates that they would put a, uh, a rope around the stone that was there, pour wax on it, and if anyone tried to roll that stone, it would break that wax seal and indicate that the, the tomb had been tampered with. This they think they've made Jesus secure, locked him away in the grave. And this is the second day the second sunset, as Jesus lies interred in the grave. We move to the resurrection now in verse 1. See how Matthew has laid it out for us. We look at the friends of Jesus and then the enemies. They plot to keep Jesus in the grave. Now he's going to talk about the resurrection, talk about the friends, and then he's going to pivot back and talk about the enemies again. Okay, so verse 1, the resurrection. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so as as Sunday is dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They probably don't know the soldiers there. I doubt they would have been allowed to break the seal and enter the tomb. But they don't know this. And so they're running to the tomb because having rested on the Sabbath and not done work on the Sabbath, they now want to finish uh, uh, preparing Jesus' body and, and getting him ready for uh, the grave with the perfumes and the body preparations that that culture would have been experiencing or would have, would have expressed. So, so they run there, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Again, pulling in from the other gospel accounts, Mark indicates he was like a young man. He was brilliant and bright, like lightning. His appearance so shatters the soldiers' courage. Verse 4, they tremble and faint and seize up. I really do wonder if they were conscious. Like, this seems supernatural that all these soldiers would be catatonic in front of this angel held there as dead men. And if they were, I can only imagine as these soldiers are laying on the ground and the angel rolls back the stone and Jesus steps out, resurrected, triumphant over sin, what those soldiers would have been thinking if they were conscious. Like, oh, we picked the wrong side. Yeah, oops. Or maybe just simply, Lord, save me. I think probably they were unconscious, but it is fun to consider what it would have been like to be present, isn't it? The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. I, I don't know if anyone else picks up on some of the irony there. The soldiers are passed out. The women are not. Right? The, the, these, the, the only few women who still seem to have courage. I mean, this Sunday night, if we go to the Gospel of John, the disciples are gathered afraid in a room hiding. And these women are out. They they are going to take care of this one, this beloved one, this this Lord of theirs, who is son and nephew. They they are not going to not do something while the disciples are hiding. Soldiers are passed out. The angel offers no comfort to those soldiers. But immediately to the women, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And here's why the angel has rolled back the stone. Jesus certainly did not need the help. But look what the angel says He is here, he is not here, for he has risen. And then he says, Come, see the place where he has been laid. The stone was rolled back not because Jesus needed an exit but because these people needed to see the evidence that the body was gone because he's been lifted from the grave, he has recovered life from death, and he is no longer in the grave. Well, how do you know he's not in the grave? The stone is rolled back, the ladies run in, and he is not there. He's resurrected. Verse seven, go and tell the disciples. Go tell them. And he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, Behold, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. That seems underwhelming. He's been raised from the dead. They've spent hours and days heartbroken and sad. They've heard from his angel he's alive. They run, hearts in turmoil, intermingled fear and joy as they run back to the disciples. And on the way, Jesus like, hey, morning. This is not a normal morning. This is an amazing morning for these women. Look at their response. They come, they, they, they run, they take hold of his feet. My guess is they're on their knees before him and worshiping him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Excitement. The eradication of fear. Do not fear. Twice. Once from the angel, once from the Lord. And and they respond with just joy that he's alive. And they worship him. Mark pans our attention back to the enemies of our Lord. While they were going, some of the guard went to the city. So the the ladies are running to tell the disciples with joy. There are some soldiers who are going probably with a whole lot of shame, a whole lot of fear, and a lot of uncertainty to a different group of men. And went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and took counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. I can only imagine how excited those soldiers were to tell everyone that they fell asleep on the job, that they're incompetent soldiers, that they got hoodwinked by a bunch of hillbilly Galileans and fishermen who are not soldiers and no SWAT team able to sneak in in the dead of night. Just fishermen. And we have a band of soldiers, not just like one guy, all collaborating, collaborating together to lie to their own hurt for the sake of money. And because the incompetence being so great, if this comes to the governor's ears and there'd be a problem there because of your professional reputation, and because of the commission from Pilate, cause any repercussions, we will come and stand at your defense. I would not trust those men. Would you? And so that story was spread among the Jews, even up to the point Matthew writes this account. I think it's worthwhile before we move to, to consider other implications of the resurrection, just to pause for a moment and ask a question I think Matthew wants us to think. How is it that men who represent God, the Pharisees, and the elders have gotten to the place where in the last 72 hours they've conspired to murder an innocent man They know the resurrection and an angelic witness has come and they still suppress the truth. They bribe soldiers at risk to their soldier's career to lie and spread rumors. How is it that men who would would not break the Sabbath day by walking too far Men who appeal to Pilate that the day not be polluted to pull those corpses off of those crosses so that we don't violate the ritual cleanliness that's required of Israel on the Sabbath. How is it that men lost sight of the morality of murder, lying, bribery, and conspiracy? I would just warn all of you that sin is deceitful. And rarely in my own personal experience have I thought, you know what, I am going to do something bad and done it. Oftentimes it's after my wife graciously reminds me I've done something bad that I realize with good intentions I've excused and redefined evil And the Lord uses faithful brothers and sisters around me in his scripture to remind me I have overstepped God's law. The sin of self-righteousness is not merely a cancer for the Pharisees. It is alive in this room. And we must be always on a search and destroy mission. Lest we be justifying our sin. Living in an unholy way before our Lord and justifying it so that we do not deal with it. Listen, if you have sin in your heart, can I just encourage you, don't wait till the end of the sermon. Before the Lord, as you always are right now, deal with it. I know there have been times where I've justified anger because of how frustrating or bad or sinful the people I'm responding to are. I have justified complaint because people are dumb, because government does stupid things, because taxes feel like theft. We complain about people and we slander them, and we call it getting counsel. We are negligent in our Bibles and we call it forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. We do not pursue a ruthless goal of holiness out of love and faith for our Savior because we excuse it through not wanting to be legalistic. I'm confident Jesus was not legalistic, and he was committed to holiness like no other. We are concerned that perhaps we might be thought too good for this earth and hypocritical if we pursue holiness. And so we displease our Lord rather than trusting him with our reputation. If you have excused sin, be warned by the example of these Pharisees and leaders who probably through a series of minimal disagreements with Jesus find themselves directly opposed, so much so, they deny the account of the resurrection from soldiers, and they bribe and conspire together to suppress what they know is the truth, rather than turning around and trusting in the Messiah who raised from the dead. How blind do you have to be? I don't know. I just don't want that to ever be me. Isn't that where you're at, believers? You don't ever want to be in those shoes. So blind to who you are, you would deny Jesus. So the way you prevent that is by being ruthless with yourself, always on that seek and destroy mission against sin, always assuming the worst about yourself and the best about others. That's how we do that. I don't think that's Matthew's central point, and so I don't want to spend too much time on that. I just. As I was reading through that, I was impressed that our church needs to be reminded again and again, sin is a liar, sin is deceitful, sin will tell us we're doing good when we're doing evil. Nothing secures death like a cancer victim who doesn't know they have it. And nothing brings corruption in the church and the Christian more than sin when we don't admit it and repent. There is a fascinating section in this account that we need to pay attention to. It's the only occurrence in the scriptures of this account. And Matthew puts it in, I think, in a strategically important place, but a confusing place. So let's, let's all look there. Come down with me to chapter 27, verse 45. He speaks of the resurrection here in a way that should call our attention to it. So we go about the sixth hour. There is darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli. Lemma sabachthani. Okay, so this is from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m.-ish. And as, as the sun is getting ready to set, Jesus passes away here. Verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it think he's called for Elijah. One of them at once, took, uh, once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. And now Matthew gives kind of this aside. Two theological things happen. And I say theological. They're two side events. They're not the death of Jesus. They're not the resurrection of Jesus. The first is this. The temple curtain is torn. I, I would think that this is the curtain that divides the holy of holies from the holy place. Verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Memory escapes me how long this curtain was, but I think it was 15 or 30 feet tall. So when it starts to get the tear at the top, it's way taller than any guy can reach. It's not a human-made tear, it's very clear. It's torn from top to bottom. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many. Did anyone notice that on the reading through the scripture? Going through like the, the account in Matthew here, I want to read that. Verse 52, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I think Matthew has kind of sandwiched these two events that happen in connection with the death and resurrection of Jesus, between the account of his death and resurrection, so that he doesn't distract from the story of Jesus' resurrection. But I think he also does it to push upon us a a couple observations about the death of Jesus. Some of you have been bedside when someone has passed away. I have never personally had that experience. But if someone passed away, and at the same time, There's a massive earthquake, and God's temple curtain is torn. God is witnessing something special has just happened. Right, This is not merely the death of a mere man. Something significant is happening here. And we've spoken about this in weeks past, how with the curtain torn, access to God has now been opened through our new and living way, Jesus Christ. We now have access directly to God through him. And the curtain being torn, the curtain that separated the holy presence of God from those of us who are sinners, is significant theologically. But it's not precisely the death of Jesus, is it? It's a byproduct of it. That is, the curtain was torn because God tore it. God was saying something happened in the death of Christ you need to know about. Jesus' death just didn't happen as ours will. I think Matthew's making the point, just like with the curtain, so too there's a resurrection. So I'm going to work backwards a little bit in the text here just so we can get the timing right. I think Matthew includes it because he's just dealt with the curtain, and then you look in verse 54, it's could be 53, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. So when does this resurrection happen? Probably, I would say, immediately after his resurrection. So, probably Sunday morning, there's another earthquake, right? You see that in chapter 28, verse 2. That earthquake happens, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's not the only one. There are more people raised from the dead on that Sunday morning. They come out of the tombs, and and it's interesting because the type of person resurrected is also significant. Who's resurrected? It says saints. I, I wish it didn't say saints. I wish it said something like holy people because you'd say the parallelism better. So, so you have, and the bodies of the holy people who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. So it's holy people going back to the holy city because the holy lamb has just died and been raised again and recovered his people. And you see this this little window into what salvation truly is. What is salvation? The curtain is torn and we have access to God. But now we see the type of person God raises from the dead is someone who is his and holy, not because they're holy in and of themselves, but made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. We could use this almost as code for true, devout believers since these would have passed away before the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ had all been accomplished, we would say these are probably Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, those who had truly trusted in God for their salvation. What is the anchor of the Old Testament salvation then? When did these people get raised from the dead? When Jesus was raised from the dead, right? After he's raised from the dead. So who is the savior of the Old Testament saint? Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, but he especially in this text reminds us that Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection secures for the Old Testament, even though they never knew Jesus of Nazareth by name, he is their Savior. Not only does he prove that in giving us this little glimpse, I think he proves that the resurrection was the final securing act of Jesus Christ to bring us full salvation. In some ways, you could say uh, the resurrection is a certificate. It's the diploma that proves all of the work of Christ has actually been accomplished and certified by God's approval. And so walking out of the grave, Jesus Christ in the train behind him brings forth resurrected saints from Jerusalem. Fascinatingly, they're seen. I can only imagine the frustration of the spiritual leaders. Right? Like, that Jesus thing, it was all a sham. Yeah, but my uncle. Like, what, what about him? He just showed up the other day. He's been dead for six years. Uh, uh, please give me an explanation. Now here's the explanation. The one who is the resurrection and life has not only acted on his work to do this in the heavens, He testifies to it on this earth so that we might know. And it causes us to reflect, what is the reason we die and are imprisoned in death? It's sin. And once again, Matthew reminds us that behind the physical death of Jesus, the physical resurrection of Jesus, accomplishes a vast spiritual warfare. Right, so, so Jesus is victorious over death. That's the accounting. That's the historical record. And Matthew pulls out this little insight, and he shows us that Jesus is not just victory over death. He's victory over death for us. Right, For us. There are people who had nothing to do with the death of Jesus Christ, who are in the grave and are raised from the dead because Jesus is raised from the dead. Why are they raised from the dead? Because they trusted in God. So what's your hope that you're going to be raised from the dead? It's anchored to this text. That our Lord who died in reference to sin was raised having conquered sin and its penalty, death, and grants for everyone who is in him that same victory over death. We know from Matthew's account He was not just merely a victor over death for himself, but for those who are raised with him in Jerusalem. It shows us that the implication of Jesus' death spreads to us too. When Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we are raised. This is the great hope of the Christian. I do think it's frustrating for us that Matthew doesn't answer the cool questions we have that we want answered. Like, what did this look like? I mean, were they resurrected like Lazarus, where they lived with their families for 15 years and then passed away again? Or is this like the full final resurrection where they get supernatural bodies and are taken to heaven? Most commentators think it's the second. I remain somewhat unconvinced but lean slightly towards that second idea. But Matthew just doesn't care. That's not the point. Right? Like, like we, we want to walk down those roads. Like, Uncle Joe shows back up again. Like, does he live with us or is he gone to heaven in a moment? We don't know. We don't know what the nature of this resurrection really look like for those who are citizens of Jerusalem or for those who are raised from the dead. What I would like to do in the last few minutes of our, our time together this morning is, is take you to Romans 8 to give you some, um, one last implication I think of this resurrection here. I think this text does it probably most succinctly. So we come to Romans 8, and the Holy Spirit takes center stage. Look in Romans 8, verse 11. Let me take you back to verse 9. You, believers, speaking to you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, he's, he's making a theological point out here that the believer is not living without the Holy Spirit. Unless they're not a believer at all, then they don't have the Holy Spirit. But, in fact, you have the Holy Spirit because you are believers. That's kind of the logic he's, he's strengthening here. So you come down to verse 11 then. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The security of your future resurrection is that this resurrection is not impersonal. Like gas in a gas tank empowers the car, but it's just a thing, right? It's a a substance. You have within you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent, under God's command, who raises Jesus out of death in victory. That same agent is the agent currently living in every one of Christ's people. He's in you now. So the security you have that you'll be raised from the dead is the same powerful, unbreakable commitment God has to raise Jesus from the dead and the Bible says it was impossible for him to remain dead is living in each one of you who are his. But that's not all the resurrection gives us hope for. Look down with me in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, who lives in you? Right? The spirit that's been planted in you from the moment you trusted in Christ. If by that spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. The resurrection was never meant just to be the future hope of the believers. It is that we are to be living now by the power of the spirit. Putting to death. The deeds, the sins, the wickedness, the evil that we have, the deeds of the flesh, and through the power of the Spirit. How powerful was the Holy Spirit when he raised Christ from the dead? Sin and death at the apex of its power and expression as it tried to hold the shoulders of Jesus in the grave could not stop the Holy Spirit. Could not stop the power of God as he broke sin's penalty as he broke the power of sin and the holy spirit raises our savior from the dead that same spirit is in you breaking sin's power for your sake for the glory of the son and the glory of the father this is why the apostle paul prays in ephesians 1 that we might know the power of his resurrection This is why in Philippians 3, he prays that he might be conformed not merely to the sufferings of Jesus, but also that he might experience the power of his resurrection. Because with all effort, Christians should be pressing towards holiness, not in human strength, but by the power of the Spirit who dwells in us, who secures for us eternal life. What hope do you have as you look across? At your 14-year-old son who's done the same stupid sin for the 1,800th time, that he will stop. It's got to be the salvation of his soul and the indwelling power and grace of the Holy Spirit. We are currently having a parenting class. The only hope that you as a parent have that your child will be reformed is the power of the Almighty God. It will take that much strength to fix him. And just as a, as a side note, so give him the gospel first. And if he be not saved, pray for God to work. And if God works and saves him, you and the almighty Holy Spirit can have great hope. right? Because the Spirit is at work in your child. I think more depressing for those of you who are in the battle against personal sins, maybe within your your marriages or workplace, you have some entrenched struggles. What gives you the confidence that you can get victory and climb out of those habituated sins? It is this that the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you to give you victory over that sin. So fight with faith and hope and God's Spirit. Fight. Actually, the words in Ephesians are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. Because God has successfully used the power, his power to defeat death, we can be confident that having broken the penalty of sin, defeated the power of sin, that for the believer, he enables us to experience that same victory over sin today so that we might have life. So let me just end with those applications. If you're saved, you have hope. You can be like Jesus. If you're saved, you have the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection is what invigorated our Savior to die. Do you realize that? That for the joy set before him, he endured or despised the shame. Hope before him indicates that he is going to go through the shame of death and come successfully out on the other side in a resurrection. He presumed the resurrection, and it energized him to die because the joy set on the other side of his death. It's one of the ways we can find in the resurrection not merely the hope of power, but the hope of reward. It's worth it. There's something more than this life. When you are raised from the dead, you're not merely alive. Again, you are alive and in the presence of your Savior who rewards righteously for all of the suffering, for all of the work, for all of the labor for his accounts. It's worth it. There are times that I think that we just kind of feel like sin is not worth fighting against. There are times where we feel like being in God's Word is just not valuable. Just a word of testimony, the really, really godly men in our church get up at 6 a.m. on Friday mornings and get together for a Bible study. Some of you are so godly, you don't need to be there. It's just the really, really godly ones who have to be there. We need more of it. So we're going through 2 Timothy. And it was super convicting to think that here's Paul, he's at, he's at at the end of his life, and he's kind of commissioning Timothy as he's getting ready to pass off the scene. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So he's writing this letter to Timothy. He's being poured out like a drink offering and he's telling him, Hurry up and get here. Winter's about to set in. It's cold. Bring my coat and my books. He's about ready to die, and he wants to know more about his Savior. He wants to read and study the Bible more. He didn't get to retirement, and be like, you know what? I've been a pastor for a long time and doing this apostle thing. I just want to read the comics. He wants to walk in the word more. The resurrection's coming. We should never stop pursuing Jesus. It's so worth it to walk with Jesus, to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings in this life, because there is a resurrection if you have not trusted in jesus christ this hope is not yours yet trust in him the pharisees the leaders they stand opposed to jesus and you can see the moral decay the more they oppose jesus the more immoral and wicked they become come to jesus and you get saved from sin from its power from the penalty and its death you get saved. You have hope you can be holy because Jesus saves you through the Holy Spirit and rescues you. Come to Jesus. Ask God to forgive you. Turn your heart over to Him. Commit to loving Him forever, and God will save you forever. You will never, ever have cause to fear of death. This is the victory Jesus promises. Christians, If the resurrection is true, do you live in the hope of it? Jesus is victor over death for your sake. Follow him. Live for the joy of the resurrection. Live empowered by the spirit against sin. Live for the resurrection because it's coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the word of Christ. We are humbled by the sweetness of the story, as we see real figures walking through real moments in history, heartbroken because the Lord of hope has died. We see the courage of a few women and a couple men as they risk reputation and maybe even life, expressing their loyalty to the Savior in acts of devotion and commitment and care. On the other hand, we see the enemies of the cross self-deceived, filled with pride. Oh, Lord, help us not to be like these men. Awaken in our own hearts a commitment to pursue holiness by making sure that we do not let sin lie, that we quickly repent, that we pursue holiness for the sake of Christ. God in heaven, I ask that through the work of the Spirit that this morning, There might be people who are awakened to the goodness and the work of Christ. And they might put their faith in him and spiritually be raised to life this day. And I ask that that would culminate in a strong confidence that all people in this room who have put their hope in Jesus will be raised for eternal life at some point in the future. So Lord, we know that your son's labor was not in vain and we know too now, because of the resurrection, that our work, that our effort, that our commitment to you, that our love for you, that our faith expressed in small moments of suffering, in big moments of sacrifice, and just the commitment to be present with your people, in the willingness to forgive deep injury, that in these things, Lord, there is rich reward because our labor is not in vain. There is a resurrection for us, and we are resurrected to rewards forever in the presence of our Lord. So. Help us to be strengthened with this confidence. I pray your church would be more holy as they meditate on the resurrection of our Savior. We ask this, that Jesus might be glorified among us and through us. In his name we pray, amen.